Amazon bestselling author, Doug Stewart, joins on the, on the show today. He's wow. the author of this book, Five and a Half Mentors, How to Learn, Grow, and Develop from Everyone and Everything. But I do have a prediction. This will be, these will be the two guys that there's very little learning or growing on this podcast episode today. <laughs> there's no learning allowed here, Doug. Sorry, buddy. I can almost promise you. I'm going to give an official. So Doug Stewart is a TEDx speaker, certified Dale Carnegie instructor, performance coach, and mentorship thought leader. And now he's an Amazon bestselling author. And you know, you failed to include Doug. You were a podcast co-host of 36 amazing episodes that you, your back probably hurt because you had to carry the team on that one. Off the top. Off the top, baby. Where, is it still around? Can we still find off the top? No, man. I, only, <sighs> I, 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 I save the episodes and, and use them sometimes for personal use. Private you know, stuff. We've done 185, 186 episodes of the Dos Marcos podcast. And the other day I told Tara, my wife, that you were going to be on the show and you'd written this book and I got it in the mail. And she goes, I really, I listened to that podcast that you guys did. I'm like, you don't listen to the mattress podcast? And she's like, not really. <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, Tara was the one, if we were late on a, uh, on when we were supposed to publish, she would send me very rude text messages. I remember that. She's like, you guys didn't publish today on time. Where is it? I want to listen to it. Calm I mean, down. It was like we had real heckling, like professional level stuff. We had a fan. Yeah. Like Reggie Miller style, like, like smack talk. Yeah. Swat it into the third row and then go cash a couple threes in a row. Yeah. Yeah. She was the, she was the Gary Payton of, um, podcasts. Yeah. That glove, don't, that glove don't fit no more. What did, what did Jordan say to the glove? He had a famous trash talking line. Anyway, Jordan, famous trash talk. Reggie, or, Reggie Miller or Jordan, best trash talker of all time? Reggie. Larry Bird. Ooh. Larry Bird. Has no to be. Way. No yeah. way. Oh. Larry Bird. Do, do you know what Larry Bird used to do before every game? He used to go stand at the doorway entrance to the visitor's locker room and greet every single player as they came to the Coliseum and talk shit to them as they walked into their dressing room before the game ever started. That's a baller move. You have to admit. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> you had to get into their head early, early and early. often. Hi, yeah. I'm Larry Bird. Welcome to uh, where you're going to get beat. Thanks. Welcome Thanks for coming. Evening you will not enjoy. <laughs> Were you a trash talker on the basketball enjoy this court? One. Massive. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, I was a trash talker first, basketball player second. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, Doug stands 6'7", played college basketball at a D1 school. And uh, he, you could do some damage on the court. We've, we've stepped onto the concrete once, and that was enough for me. We have in Logan, Utah. No, well, I wasn't in Logan. You and I were oh, down in right. Florida. Oh, outside. Yes, mm -hmm. after you and Jake drugged me around on that run. Yeah, and then you timed us to see if we could actually make the speedometer go off that would say you're going too fast through oh. the neighborhood. And we almost caused Quinn a deer to lose its life. No. no, here's what happened. Quinn, listen, listen, listen. They see this thing we're running and they're like, hey, I bet we can run fast enough. Let's see how fast we're going. So they run by <laughs> and the sign doesn't register. They run by again, the sign doesn't register. They run by again and it's, thank you for driving slowly. <laughs> 
So you're talking about one of those side signs that tells you what yeah, speed you're going. And then it's side of the road oh, signs okay. that like, please yeah. slow down, like, yeah. or it like shows how fast you're going and blinks really fast. Nah, man. Thank you for driving slowly. Mark Kinsley. All, all I remember is we were running along trying to make it register and we scared the deer that were there in Florida. I'm like, I didn't know there were deer in Florida. I was expecting an alligator to come up and grab it. And the deer got scared, ran across the road in front of a Penske truck and almost, just almost clipped it. And I was like, I we would have been responsible for in this land of magic and Disney and all things kids for demolishing a deer. I don't right know. Man. The hotel. I don't remember. I don't remember the deer. Maybe either, either, maybe I was too far behind to have seen that part. Maybe I've been to the same conferences at the same places over and over again. And all my experiences are running together. Maybe cocaine's a powerful drug. Azamatamuche, <laughs> Nagasha. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so we met, um, we met through a tweet that you sent, and we can get into that if we want. Um, yeah. But we, we met, and through our friendship, uh, ended up going to Mega Group. This is before Mega Group uh, merged with Nationwide. And, of course, now Nationwide is one of our sponsors, but I remember going to your, your learning Academy stuff. You, you called it mega business Academy, which was MBA. Yep. And MBA got to sit in on some of those with you. I did a Snapchat takeover one time, but you've been, you've been in the game man. you've been in the buying group world and you yeah. were there for a long time, did a fantastic job. People loved you, loved your sessions, loved the teaching and the coaching that you brought. Um, and now, you know, Nationwide being one of our sponsors, they're launch, launching performance groups. And performance groups, it's like eight to 10 non-competing retailers that can get in the same virtual room at the same time, talk shop, share ideas, and really get into some of those details. I mean, you, you put some of that stuff together back when you were doing your thing too. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, you know, I, I think, and I, I don't know if, I think it was Michael Magnuson who, who said this, but he, he would always talk about how oftentimes we think we're in competition with each other as retailers or mattress stores, furniture stores, appliance stores, whatever it is. Um, when the reality is, is we are all in competition with everything else that's vying for the customer's uh, attention. And man, I, I found that to be such a, that was such a fun part of my, of my life being in those, those uh, business academy, which is now looks like they're, calling it performance groups but those are those are so valuable man like the the more i think we we forget how much value is an experience you know and it's it's not always the the most uh, successful person that can give you the best guidance sometimes it's the person that's shoulder to shoulder that just has a bit of a different perspective that can give you that that thing that can change your business yeah i mean you're always, you're literally getting set up with a group of mentors Whenever you join a nationwide performance group, you have a group of mentors that you can learn, grow, and develop from. And so head to nationwidegroup.org if you're not a member, and then get in contact with your, your nationwide person to figure out how you can become what part of the performance groups. Because I'm telling you, in my own life, it, being alone in a room is a bad idea. When I'm confronted and another person's talking to me and I have to answer tough questions, that's, that's really where you grow and learn. And uh, Nationwide's given people a good framework for doing that. It's like being at their live event. 
it's the connection to people. It's walking around in the hallways. It's sitting down with someone at breakfast you don't know. That's that's where you get so much of that. It's just from talking to the people. The sessions are fine too, but anyway, got to love it. Yep. Well, okay. I want to get your perspective on something else, Doug, as we're talking about our sponsors. One of them is Podium. Podium is the ultimate messaging platform. I mean, it really is. And one of the things that Podium does so well is texting. Oh, whoa, look out, texting. No, if you, okay, so you're, you've been in the furniture and mattress business. You've worked retail. In this day and age, people want to text. And if you're working and you've got a couple of stores you cover, your retail manager, and you're sitting there texting customers from your personal number, and then trying to hand off that communication to somebody else, I mean, take me into that. That sounds like a nightmare. It's, it's awful. In, in fact, here's one small change that we made when I was managing the home comfort stores in, uh, in the Raleigh market back in the day is we had such a hard time with people giving us their telephone number because we wanted to follow up, right? Because I, growing up, my grandfather, who was a retailer, and this is how I was in the family business early, he would call it the B-back bus. And he would say, do not let people get on the B-back bus. And I'm like 10, 12 years old starting on the sales floor. And so I can remember one day I would be like, granddaddy, like, why are you keep telling me about this B-back bus? And he, he, like, he was like, he was a, he was like all about theater, right? He always wanted to like make an experience for you. So he, he put his arm around me. He walked me out to the front of the store. He pointed down and there was a bend in the road and he would go, you see that bend in the road right there, just on the other side of that, you can't see it, but just on the other side, there is a bus stop. And that's where everyone that says they'll be back tomorrow or they'll be back this weekend, they get on that be back bus. And then at midnight, every night, the bus drives directly off a cliff. And so the best thing you can do for me, because, and there's never any survivors on that be back from the be back bus accident. Right. And so we talked about be back bus all the, all the time when I was a sales manager and, and the best way to get people to come back was to follow up with them, right? And so email wasn't very effective. Calling was always more effective, but it was hard to get people to say yes and give us their telephone numbers. And we made this one change and it completely changed everything. And this is before something like Podium was, uh, was available is we would say, hey, do you mind giving me your number so I can text you? And our conversion on, on people giving us their number exponentially, like from like 10% to like 80% like that, um, because people did want to communicate with us, but they wanted to do it on their time at their convenience. Um, and texting is, is such an important part of, of business, especially today. You know, one of the crazy things too, we've literally talked about backs and how Podium helps avoid backs for another reason. It's the follow-up, like you mentioned. It's also text to pay. Sounds like a super simple thing, but with Podium, you can put a link to all the products that that person experienced in your store and say, hey, you know what? You don't even have to come back. If you make a decision at home and you decide this is what you wanted, you wanted this sofa, you wanted this mattress, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text you a link and it's going to have all that information. You can pay right then and there and we'll deliver it to your house. So the B-backs that went off the cliff that night, they don't have to come back because you can text to pay. And since uh, the COVID shutdown that started in March, Podium's nearing $50 million in text wow. payment processing for mattress stores alone. So people want this, they want it. 
It's a no brainer. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're a salesperson, you, you've got to vie for something. I mean, I can remember being on the sales floor myself and being like, I've got this person. They may come back tomorrow, but I'm off tomorrow. If, and if I'm off tomorrow and they come back, you know, who is, nobody's going to give me that sale, that character that's going to take that customer is going to be, yeah, I talked to them two weeks ago. I remember them, of course, Mr. Smith. Right. And so, I mean, just being able to have that sort of access as a salesperson is, is, is remarkable. I, I feel like I would have, I would have had much fewer sales stolen from me back in the day. That's another, that, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, okay. One, one more, since you're on a roll here, you, you ran a retail store, um, you know, this business inside and out, uh, whenever people walk into your door, and then they leave and you don't know how many people went to that store or, or what your traffic counts were for the day. Really frustrating. I'm, I'm sure. Like, was it a UPS man? How many people actually came? Did my advertising work? And so that's why we love curating some of these cool ideas. And one of them is door counts and I get their, their retail traffic index. And if you want to sign up for it, just go to retail traffic index.com and you can get it to your inbox. So here's today's retail traffic. Um, Actually, this is yesterday's. So mattress stores, they have over six, 700 stores right now. So this is an average. Nine, only nine people came into mattress stores, 61 into furniture stores on average, and 90 into appliance stores. Appliance stores are rocking right now. But door counts allows you to see who's coming in your door, takes a picture, maps it to a salesperson on an upboard, and then it's a CRM on the back side of it. So you can stay in communication, use tools like Podium and actually integrates with Podium. Um, but back in the day, man, it was like, who came in? I don't know. Yeah, or it was like the dog clicker. You know, mm -hmm. like I can remember there was one time I was in Eastern North Carolina and I was about to walk into a, a furniture, one of my accounts. This is when I was a rep. And there was a sign on the door, handwritten sign that was, that was taped on the door that said, unless you're a customer, do not come in this door, come in the back door. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, what, what, a, what an initial experience for a customer. And because he would get this particular salesperson would get dinged for every single person. There was an expectation for a close rate and the UPS man and sales reps and, you know, people asking, you know, people having a, I don't know, flat tire or something like that. He did not want them to come in the door because that just made his quota go up. And so having, having some, you know, some, some ability to know who is who and what is what, not to mention the benefit to the, to, to the actual person who's, who's setting the goals. Uh, problem solved the door counts, man. And that, I mean, that's why they have 700 stores out there. People are like, okay, sick of spending all this money to get people to come into my store and then not knowing how many people came in or not knowing who's responsible for them for that communication piece that we talked about. Um, but I love, I've kind of geeked out lately on this retail traffic index. So go to retailtrafficindex.com. You can see how your foot traffic stacks up to other retail stores. And uh, you can always get connected with somebody from door counts and they are just bad to the bone, good human beings. Does that work? Bad to the bone, good human beings? I like it. Sure. I'm going with it. Dos Marcos Podcast. It's the greatest mattress industry podcast on the planet. Wait, isn't this the only mattress industry podcast? He's Mark Kensley. I truly felt bad for you at the time. He's Mark Quinn. I think Bigfoot was actually very pleasant. Together, they are Dos Marcos. 
Doug Stewart is on our podcast today, and Doug is an old friend, uh, a dear friend, a wonderful human being. And the fact that he published a book um, does not surprise me uh, because he's one of the best thinkers that I know. And he doesn't just think, he, he does with those thoughts that ping pong around his, his big brain, his, his big heart. Um, Doug, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you for writing this book. I finished it this morning and there it was, second to last page, second to last line. You put my name in the book. Shout out. <laughs> shout out, shout out, Mark Clinton. All right, let's, let's start here. Five and a half mentors, how to learn, grow, and develop from everyone and everything. You probably get asked this a lot already. What's the half mentor? Let's get right into it. What, what is a half mentor? So, so the half mentor was the hardest for me because I, I found for myself that there were, there were certain opportunities to grow that, that I naturally shied away from. Uh, and this happened early. And so I, I found, though, that the most valuable was, was this half mentor. And that's why I lead, the, lead off in the book talking about the half mentor, which I call the anti-mentor. The, the anti-mentor for me is, was, and, and this is an idea that's really, really evolved since it, since it sort of popped in my head. Originally, the anti-mentor was the people who I did not want to be like, right? So, so think about, it's, it, it's the, the Charlie Sheens in my life, you know what I mean? Like the people that is like, it's not the way I want to live my life. And so it was, it was a sort of a, an awareness to go, okay, so if they made these decisions, what, what are some of the alternative or alternate decisions I can make to not take that path? And then as I went along, I realized that that idea is much more robust if I allow it to be. And so as an example, I found that sometimes I was the anti-mentor. And sometimes the people that I thought were the anti-mentor were just people that had a different perspective. And then other times the people that I thought were the anti-mentor was actually right and I was wrong. And they were just in a blind spot of mine and it, and it made me uncomfortable, right? And so that half mentor, the anti-mentor, and I think is something, I think I say this in a book, but I find that the people that irritate me the most teach me the most when I let them. So the people that, that challenge me, teach me to think, um, think independently. The people that abandoned me in my life have taught me to be resilient. The people that uh, frustrate me teach me patience. The people that hurt me teach me compassion, right? And these are all choices we make. You know, I, I, one of the things I, I, I really thought about a lot about while I was writing the book was this idea of, gosh, we can't really control our circumstances, but we can control how it how it impacts us later, right? What we do with it, does it, does it create a brokenness in us or does it create uh, a fertile ground where something perhaps more, more beautiful, more helpful, more generous can, can grow because we've had that, that tough interaction or that tough circumstance. So I feel like I could have written the whole darn book about the anti-mentor. Well, speaking of those tough circumstances, tell us your story uh, because the, I'll give you one piece of the puzzle for the audience listening. You have dyslexia and you have this yeah. whole story that's woven into the book that it becomes very much a personal journey. So to give, tell people your story. Yeah. So, so it turns out that dyslexia is only, only a small part of it. Unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, 
So I, I was a very rambunctious young person. I was, I was the kid that uh, teachers would refer to as that student. You know, it's like they would draw straws to see which third grade teacher got Doug Stewart. You know what I mean? Like that kind of a student. And so when I was 11 years old, I got tested by the state of North Carolina to sort of figure out. My parents wanted to know, like, how can we help him? And I grew up in a really small town. I went to a very small Christian school that didn't have a ton of resources, didn't really know how to deal with a kid like me. And, you know, it was, it was either like stop letting him have sugar, you know, perform mm-hmm. an exorcism or something in between, right? They didn't really know what to do. And so the state tested me and I was supposed to get a, you know, a, a report back and I didn't get a report. I got like a packet. And so dyslexia was one of those things, but it was also ADHD. I had some sensory issues. I was in speech therapy for four years for speech impediments. Um, I later was diagnosed with uh, bipolar type two, right? So there's like all of these things. And so I was thought of, I was just, as a kid, I was medicated and put in the back of the room, like a lot of kids at that age. Um, Before, like Quinn, we were talking about before the the call, it's like this was before like ADD and ADHD had been invented. You know what I mean? So they didn't even have a word for it other than a problem, right? and so I, I grew up in two worlds, uh, in, in, in multiple different ways. In one world as a student, I was told that I was incompetent. I was told that I was special, but not in the good sense. I was told that I couldn't keep up. I was told that I was different than the other kids. I was put in special classes. I was, I was, I was pushed through. Um, I didn't have to actually take many of the tests because they knew that they just wanted me to sit in the back, be medicated, and be quiet. But there was this other part of my life where I was gifted with some athletic ability. And so I would be in the classroom and think that I was the absolute worst person on the planet. I'd leave the classroom and walk into the gym and be a celebrity. And so I had these two worlds that I lived in that were really, really strange because it was complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, additionally, with my family dynamic, my, my mother gave me so much confidence as a kid. Like she told me I was everything I did. It was the greatest thing that had ever happened in the history of mankind. Like she gave me this, this obnoxious amount of confidence. But then I had the grandfather that I spent a a whole lot of time with who was a depression baby. And he made sure that I knew uh, that I was not nearly as good as I thought. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so it was kind of that same dynamic with, with them. And I looked up and loved them both equally. And so it was, it was a, a, weird, a weird thing where at some point I just had to sort of look around and decide. And the decision I made as a young person was like, I'm sort of a victim of this stuff. Like I can play basketball for sure. Um, but at some point that's going to end. So, you know, this is, this is you know. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And for me, I just saw myself as a victim, like other kids in my school that didn't do well in school. It was because they were lazy. Like I legitimately didn't have the capacity or the competency to do it. And so like, what am I going to be when I grow up? I don't know. I'm just going to live here where I was born and, you know, like hope someone loves me enough to marry me. And, you know, maybe my kids will do better than me. I don't know. You know what I mean? So I didn't have a lot of like, like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think it was going to be very good for me um, until I, I had a run-in with, a, with an academic advisor in college who was willing to disrupt my uh, negative behavior and pattern and, and really be one of the first people to look at me and be angry at me, not because of my performance, but because of how I thought about myself. And that interaction with her 
really changed the trajectory of my life and woke me up. Well, she told you, didn't she, Doug? Her name was Sarah, right? Sarah, yeah. So Sarah told you early on that you were a victim of your own thinking. And, and you kind of touched on that. And I just, you know, I, I just think about that. And one of the things I loved that you wrote in your book was um, a quote from Albert Einstein. And you include it in here and you say, everyone's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to, to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. And I just, that really landed with me because I think there's a lot of, like, I look around and um, when I lived in Joplin on my street, I lived next to like a lot of doctors. And I thought, you know, going to parties and cocktail parties, like they must think like, who's this moron who's not the doctor, right? You know, because everyone else is, uh, you know, has advanced degrees and and their physicians or doctors saving lives. And then I'm this dumbass yeah. like marketing guy, right? But you know, they, they, uh, they probably couldn't host a mattress podcast, right? Uh, they can save a life. They can tie off a heart valve, but they can't sell a bed, right? So um, anyway, I, I think it's important for anyone, no matter what they're doing, to like really look around and say, look, I may not have a photographic memory. I may not be able to memorize 50 states in 24 hours with their capitals as a young kid, but by golly, I can actually get up in front of a class and speak and share my heart and inspire people. And so um, it, I, I, think it, I think it was a really cool thing to include in there because I think that a lot of people need to look at it differently. Don't judge yourself um, using a measuring stick from other people. And you found sports as your way to find value and worth in who you were. And yeah. I think that's a cool, a cool part of your story. Yeah. One, one of the things that I, that I find really interesting about the concept of genius is the idea, the concept itself is super, super old. It's a really old idea. And it's not until it sort of comes into Western, the Western mind where it turns into like something you have or something you don't. Like I am a genius. They are a genius. You know, I'm not a genius because look at what they can do. You know, it's like, um, it's like not everybody can be as, as, as smart as, you know, the people that we idealize, like, I don't know, like Steve Jobs or Mark Kinsley, you know, um, but, but the idea of genius was originally something that came and went. You have a genius. Genius came to you. And so we've all had those moments where, where it's, we are almost, it's almost a disembodied experience to go, oh my gosh, I thought so deeply about that or I, or I accomplished something that, I didn't, that other people couldn't have or I had this moment when I was really congruent with my mind, my body, my spirit. That's, that's what being a genius is. And the way to be that more consistently is to be in line with who you are, what you're gifted in, and to do more of that and not try to to, to fit some checkbox that somebody else has that is normally completely irrelevant to, to having a, a meaningful contribution in the world. One of the things you say in the book too, Doug, is, is something that if you rewind history and I put myself in the shoes of, of Mark Kinsley as a younger man, I was on the hunt for people to help me along the path maybe even to point me in the right direction. And in the book, you say something to the effect of Yoda may not show up. You know, Luke Skywalker crashes his, <laughs> his plane in the, in the swamp, you know, and there, there's Yoda, this amazing guide 
that's able to point him in the right direction and, and say, the force is within you and cultivated that for him and at least showed him that it was there. Man, for a lot of young guys, Yoda never shows up. And I think your book is a good guy. It is a guide. It is a Yoda to say, you know what? I got to put myself in the driver's seat here and, and I've got to do this on my own and I've got to be intentional about it. And this is, this is a way for helping people find ways to recognize Yoda in all that's around us. It seems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it was true for me. I think, I think Yoda shows up. I think mentors show up when we need them, but they don't show up at the starting line, man. Like they don't show up when we desire them. They show up when we've earned them. Um, you know, Karate Kid is one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, and you, you think about like Mr. Miyagi wasn't walking around looking for people to teach. You know what I mean? Like he was doing his own thing, super happy. And Daniel in the movie, this dude is someone that had a perceived need. He was getting his face kicked in being the, you know, being the new kid. And he wanted to learn how to fight. And it wasn't until attitude and action um, was noticed by Mr. Miyagi that he was even willing to help. And it's true for mentor. It's true for anybody. Like nobody wants to be the person. If, if I'm the mentor, if you're the mentor, none of us want to walk around, pull people off of a sofa and drag them across their own finish line. You know, but how, how willing are we to go out of our way to spend our resources to, to let them borrow our credibility if they're doing the work, if they have the action, the attitude, and, and, they, and they have a track record, man, I'll go out of my way a hundred times for somebody like that. But somebody that I've got I've to talk into it, there's not a mentor that will show up. Well, and that goes to the student being ready, right? You, you always hear the quote, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. And, and don't you guys feel a little like Miyagi really just wanted his fence painted and his car waxed? Yes. Do, don't you really think that's what that movie was about? Side bennies, man. The side bennies of being a mentor. F free labor. Um, Doug, so in, in the book, we talk about mentorship. Uh, and you actually broke it down for everybody. And I love that because so, you know, it helps like, what is it really? And you had an, a, a, an acronym of motivate M stands for motivate uh, you to do amazing things. So that's anyone who's an influencer in your life, encourage you to grow, nudge you in the right direction for N tackle your toughest issues, organize your thoughts, and then realign your perspective. And so I love that because, you know, that's really um, something that takes courage to do. So if you are a person looking to aspire to something more than you are, um, to be able to sit there and have someone break you down and, and expose yourself and show your vulnerabilities, uh, a lot of that comes from the student. And the last thing, and I'll ask you to react to this, uh, you, you say in the book is courage is something you can choose confidence is something you have to earn and it's the result of courage. And I love that. So courage is something you have to choose and confidence is something you learn. So talk to us about the student here um, a little bit and not the mentor himself, but the student sure. and what it, what it really re requires to get the max benefit from the mentor. So I, I really deeply believe um, that when we choose to be confident, we just wake up and go, today, 
gonna be, we say our affirmations in the mirror, we, you know, throw cold water in our face and we beat our chest and go, today I'm gonna be confident. At, at best, it's arrogance. And at worst, it's delusion. You know, because you cannot really, you, like, you can choose to be confident as long as you don't go do the work. You can be as, con people do this all the time. Every, every Monday night, when Monday night football comes on, people do this. They sit on their sofa and they talk about the, how the quarterback messed up or how the, that route wasn't run right. So they can be as confident as they want on the sofa, but put pads and a helmet on that character and put him out of the 50 yard line his confidence changes when he starts actually having to show up and do it, right? And so there's a difference between being a critic and being someone who is competent in doing the work. And the thing that is required is courage. And it's not just courage like I'm willing to do it, but it's courage to be willing to be wrong. It's courage is willing to fail. You know, if you, if you want to learn how to hit a baseball, you've got to fail an awful lot. And even if you're good, you've got to be willing to fail more than you succeed, right? And I find for, for myself, as, as I think about the people that have come alongside me and, and really mentored me, they, they have been most willing when I've had the courage to show up, put my ego aside and go, I either I know I'm completely wrong about this, or I know there's multiple perspectives here that I'm not seeing. Help me. And I've never had a person turn me away from that conversation. But when I want to vent or I want to tell, you know, I want, I want my mentor to think I'm so smart. I want my mentors to think that I am 40 times less smart than I think I am. Like, I, I want them to think that I can't do it. What I want them to know is that I am trying, that I, that I am willing to fail, that, I'm, that, I will, that I will go the extra mile, that I will put in the effort. I don't care if they think I'm right or not. Um, in fact, I was having a conversation. I got really frustrated with a mentor. My primary mentor, I talk about Tom, I talk about him in the book. I got really frustrated with him about two weeks ago because I called him and I had, I was really upset about, about this particular business thing. And I was just venting. And so he goes, he goes, well, have you considered this perspective and sort of shared a new perspective? And, and I said to him, I said, you know, it can be really inconvenient when you won't just get angry with me and just agree, you know, and I, I had, it was a good reminder to myself that his whole purpose in our relationship is to, is to point out my blind spots, is to point out my inconsistencies, is to point out where I'm being hypocritical. And my job is to accept those things and to make assumptions that I'm missing stuff, that I'm, that I'm wrong in some areas, so that I can be willing to see it from other people's perspective. So I can see, you know, turn the idea 30 degrees and look at it differently. And to know that, gosh, I have my experience, but that's only half of the truth if that much, and the other person has the other half. And so having the courage to be wrong, having the courage to, um, to, to have a different perspective, having the courage to call someone and go, you know what, I know I said this, I've completely changed my mind. You know, we, we, we attach our ideas so close to our identity that it, it may be one of the things that hold us back more than anything else. When Good Lord, man, I have so many ideas in a day. If I attach them to my identity, I would, I would be in a padded room right now. Um, and so knowing that like, just because I have an idea, just because I say something, just because I take a position, it doesn't mean that I, I can't change that position. And culturally, we've done that to ourselves, right? Like we, we, 
we go back in people's tweets 30 years and, you know, we go because they believe that then they, they must pay for this now. And, you know, it's, it's just not always the way it works. Reminds me of the Chappelle uh, stand up that's on Netflix. I think it's called sticks and stones. Yeah, and he said, he said, Oh, hold on a second. I'm going to do an impersonation. <clears throat> okay. You guys ready for this? Uh, I'm not going to let you ever forget about anything you've ever done your entire life. And he does this whole impersonation. And then he goes, who is it? And he goes, that is you <laughs> audience. Yes. Yes. It's like, yes. gotta, gotta rethink things, let it go, move on. And man, do we need to do that for each other too? Yep. It's, it's baked into our culture in so many ways, you know, it's baked into our politics, it's baked into our religion, it's baked into our tradition, you know, and, and I, I, I strongly believe that until we're willing to just go like, hey, not only is it okay to say you're wrong, it's, it's necessary <laughs> for growth. You know, I've got to grow out of this thing. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily like that it's bad that I was there unless you were doing something that was harmful or or hurtful to another person or marginalizing another person. That's, that's a completely different thing. But just for me to go, Hey, this is, I believe this because this is how I was raised. I believe this because this is what I was, this is what I always believed. It's, it's the fastest way to stunting yourself as a human being. Well, speaking of admitting that you're wrong or that you don't know, you tell a great story in the book about taking your daughter ice skating. So tell that story because it, it kind of lands the plane on it. Yeah. So, so this was, I, I find that my daughter has been really my primary mentor in, in, in my life. She's nine now, but when she was about four, she, she came up to me and she puts her hands on her hips and she says to me, daddy, take, take me skating. And as a father, there's a few things I knew to be true. I knew that she did not own a pair of skates. I knew that she had never been skating and I knew for sure she did not know how to skate. And so, you know, being in the coaching profession that I'm in, I, you know, my job is to really ask questions. And I oftentimes practice this on my, on my family. Sometimes they like that. Sometimes they don't care for that. And uh, so I look at my daughter. I can relate to that. My wife gets so mad at me for asking her questions. She's like, stop asking me questions. So oh, I totally bro, get that. I can't tell you how many times my <laughs> wife has looked at me and she's gone, you are not my coach. Knock it off. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I get you, man. It's, and, and so I, I, I start asking my daughter some questions. I'm like, okay, so, so baby, do you, do you know how to skate? And she's like, yep. And so next question is, so how do you know how to skate? And emphatically, she goes, frozen. And so there's something in this Disney movie that gave her the idea, that gave her a bit of knowledge that she could skate. And, you know, Frozen is just like every other Disney movie, right? If you've seen a Disney movie, you've seen Frozen things are good, they go bad, they get good again, and then they all live happily ever after. And there's some singing in between those things, right? And so I decide that I'm going to sit down with my daughter and figure out what it was. So it turns out at the end of this movie, there's two main characters. There's Anna, there's Elsa. Elsa is the one with the magic ice powers. Anna is like the quirky sister. They have a, things are good in the beginning, then they go bad, then they get good again, just before the end, just before the credits roll everyone in the city that they uh that they are the princess uh the princesses i don't know how they how they do that anyways everything was good the, all of everyone in the city starts coming out to celebrate for like that last song to play 
And Elsa, the one with the magical ice powers, turns the entire courtyard into ice. And then she gives all of the normal, every average, everyday citizens ice, ice skates. In that moment, the second they get these ice skates, all of these, you know, the baker, the, the, the blacksmith, like all of like the normal everyday people turn into Olympic level ice skaters. So my daughter reasons to herself that the only thing that must stand between her and a triple axle is simply a pair of skates, right? And so I decide the next day I was going to test the theory. So we get up in the morning, we get in the car, we drive to the skating rink, I set her up on the counter, I put the little baby starter skates on her, I take her out to the center of the rink, I take my hands off her, I step back, and immediately she falls, her butt hits the ground, and the moment her butt makes contact with the ground, she looks up at me and she goes, Daddy, my skates are broken. And I had to explain to her that her skates weren't broken, that she didn't know how to skate. And there's a difference between knowing what it looks like, being able to tell the difference between good and bad skating and being able to actually skate yourself. And so I pick her up. I start to coach her. We get her to the place where she can just stand. She's not no triple axles, like no, no movement, just standing. So she's athletic stance, arms, you know, legs shoulder width apart, athletic, you know, knees bent a little bit. That's it. And then the DJ comes on and asks everyone to get off the rink because they're going to have some races. And my daughter is like, fiercely, it's in our house there. We have, we call my, my wife and my daughter, I call them the board flippers because just before they lose a game, uh, like a family game night, just before they lose, they will flip the board so that they don't lose. Like that's how competitive those two, those two women in my house are. And so she hears that there's going to be races and she's committed that she's going to race. And so luckily the boys were going to race first. And so I take her off the rink and I'm like, okay, she's going to see this and she's going to see that she can't skate like this. So she's, she's not, we're going to be cool. So as the boys are racing, it seems as if her confidence, which at, at best is arrogance at worst is delusion. I think at that point it was delusion for her. She sees these boys going around and she's getting more confident. And so then it's the girl's turn and she looks at me. She's like, daddy, like, I really want to race. Let me race. And I'm like, baby, you can't skate. Like, of course you can't race. And, <laughs> and so she looks at me and she goes, daddy, I really, really want to race. And so I think like, here's a, here's a life lesson, defining moment opportunity for me. So I look at my daughter. I say, sweetheart, I tell you what, if you can get from here to the starting line, you can race, go for it. Like I'll, I'll cheer you on. I'll clap for you. And so she looks up at me and she's got like almost, almost tears in her eyes. And she goes, daddy, I'm, I'm really scared. Will you go with me? And I completely cave, like completely cave. So she doesn't skate to the starting line. I pick her up and I carry her to the starting line, like having no idea what's going to happen. I just know that I have been beat. So I set her down and it's like, okay, here we go, baby. All right. Remember feet shoulder width apart, bend your knees a little, put your hands out for balance. Like just don't fall at the starting line, you know? And so I look over and the other girls that are lining up aren't other, you know, sweet, innocent, cute little four-year-olds. These are girls that are there every weekend. So like in my mind, this is like women's roller derby. You know what I mean? Like the Monstar is about to like crush Tweety Bird sort of a situation. And I'm like, I'm terrified, man. Like what is going to happen to my sweet little daughter? 
And I look down at her, like hoping to God she's having a change of heart and realizes she's in way over her head. And she hasn't even looked at the other competitors beside her. She's like straight down the line, athletic stance, like just believing this is going to happen for her. And she's somehow going to get this ability to skate. So the DJ comes on, it's like on your mark, get set, go. And these darn roller derby girls go flying off the starting line. And my daughter turns, she looks at me and she screams at the top of her lungs. She goes, daddy, push me fast. And so I start pushing her like, and she's just in this like, like this rigid athletic stance thing. And I've got my hands um, like around her waist, just pushing her, just wrecking my, my, uh, my quads, you know what I mean? Like just killing me. And it's a three lap race. I'm confident we got lapped like five or six times during this race we fell bunches of times. And so we finally get to coming around the, the third turn of the third lap. It's almost over. And I look, I look down to the finish line. So happy we're about to cross this thing. And my legs and my back are going to get some relief. When I see the finish line, every single person in the, in the, the entire skating rink is standing at the finish line, jumping, clapping, cheering for my daughter to come across the finish line. So, and we, we go across and everyone goes crazy. And it was the most, it was amazing to me because it really, because of her attitude, because of her action, because of her willingness to take help, because of um, her relentless uh, pursuit, she really created the same exact outcome that she saw in Frozen with none of the skill which was um, which to me really begged the question of the distinction between authority and influence because she had no authority in this in the entire time she was 4 years old she couldn't she could not have driven herself there she couldn't have paid to rent the skates she couldn't have gotten herself from the from the from the desk to the rink she could have not gotten to the starting line she couldn't have ridden around, you know done the three laps but the reason she did is because she had an attitude and, and willingness to fail that compelled me as the authority to support her. And this is what, to me, this is one of the best pictures of mentorship because the best mentors are drawn to people. They're attracted to people that, that are willing to, 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 to approach life, their work, their career, whatever it is in that way. And, still to this day, it's the best example that I've ever lived of what, the, what I call in the book, the mindset, the mentor mindset really requires in order to be able to, to do something that you could have never accomplished by yourself. And we all have that something that we want to accomplish that's bigger than who we are. And I think for me, that's one of the best examples. The only thing that makes that story better is that at the very end, when you push her across the finish line, she turns around and goes, dad, you suck. You pushed me too slow. We got last place. That would have. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And threw her skates on the ground. Yeah. I would have written a different book. No, I, I love that story, man. And, and how ferocious your daughter is. What a, what a cool story. The fact that she had the courage. I mean, how many kids would have the courage back to what we were saying earlier to actually step out there and and potentially fail not having any knowledge of that sport at all that's just it's amazing that she was able to do that but it's, it's something i heard seth godin say in an interview he his new 
I just finished reading his new book called The Practice, which is just a brilliant book. And during one of the interviews, he, he asked the question, what would you do if you knew for sure that you would fail? And I'd never heard it asked like that before. And I thought that was so brilliant that like, what is worth doing so much, even if you will absolutely not accomplish it, that it's still worth doing. And that's really what my daughter did, right? She knew she, she knew she couldn't, she knew she could not possibly compete yet. She was willing to try anyways, because it was worth the effort. And she ended up finishing doing something she couldn't have done with because of her attitude, her action, her, her willingness to, to, to let the cards fall where they may. Doug, what did you say earlier about at worst it's delusion? Yeah. So uh, confidence at best is arrogance and worst is delusion. You know, I, I went back to that as I was listening to the story of your daughter. So at best it's arrogance at worst it's delusion. So let's call it, she was delusional about her abilities to actually step onto the ice and skate yet her delusion with the right attitude attached to it brought her closer to her dad and brought an entire community of skaters together in a moment that they remember yep. her crossing the finish line. They're all cheering. There was the blacksmith. There was the baker. There was the hair, hairdresser all from frozen in this moment of delusion. And so I think there's something worth pausing on there. You know, even if something seems crazy, if you do it with the right spirit and right attitude, it, it reminds me of this kid that, that my, my wife told me about when she taught high school. Um, just a quirky kid. He's one of these kids that probably would have been, you know, in, in some weird club and who knows what else, you know, just that kid, but you know, had like hilarious ways he dressed, but that he wasn't trying to do anything, you know, artsy or anything. He just was a, an out there kind of kid, but this kid would come by and he, he was always part of clubs. Hmm. And so as part of being in a club, you had to sell stuff to make money for the club so that the club can continue to exist. And so she would always tell me about this kid. He came by and he said, uh, Mrs. Kinsley, hi. Uh, it's so great to see you. You look wonderful today. And what a beautiful day out. I mean, can you believe this weather? And uh, so we're selling things and uh, I have these wonderful options. I think this, is, this one's really going to be a fit for you. And she said, sorry, Michael, I can't, I'm not going to do it today. No problem. That's totally fine. No problem whatsoever. A week later, this kid would knock on her door. This kid, it's great to see you again. How have you been? I haven't seen you in a week. You know, I, I just thought I'd stop by and check with you just one last time. I know you said no, but, you know, I don't know. Things could have changed between them. And this kid just always brought the energy and the passion. And finally, I said, Tara, I go, take my money and go buy something from this kid. <laughs> because he was delusional that people were going to buy. But his attitude and his spirit he brought with him ended up attracting the right people. And I think that's something that we we miss when we get focused on on the challenges let's be delusional every once in a while and go get it yeah here so here's what i would say about that and i love that you bring this up so she was delusional until she fell and then she was willing to fail which is a completely different way of showing up right because delusion goes delusion is what happened before she got to the ring delusion is oh yeah i can do that of course i can do that but delusion never causes people to accomplish anything. It, it actually does the opposite, right? So we have to go from delusion to, and this is what happens with, with this young man that you're talking about. He knew that she was probably going to say no, but he was willing to do it anyway. He was willing to do it even if it meant failing. 
right? And that's, and we have to, and this goes back to what we were talking about with being, being okay with being wrong. This is the, the, this also attaches into that anti-mentorship thing. And like, we have to be willing to go, Hey, I think this is right. There's a good chance I'm wrong. And even if I'm right now, at some point, this is going to be wrong. Right. And, and being willing to go, even though, even though I'm not right about this, even though I might fail about this, even though, even though I don't know what I'm doing, I'm still willing to ask, I'm still willing to do the work, I'm still willing to try. And so there's a there is a fine line, I think, between delusion and just willingness to try and either way, people think you're crazy for it. Yeah, and I think a little bit of being being delusional puts people into situations they otherwise wouldn't have landed in. I mean, Mike Tyson used to say, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And once you get punched in the mouth, you know, you're delusional. You shouldn't have stepped into the ring with Tyson. But once you get punched in the mouth, just like Kindle falling on the ice, you have to decide, now do I finish strong? And do I carry a good spirit about it? And do I smile? Or do I climb out of the ring and, and not box? And sometimes you absolutely climb out of the freaking <laughs> ring and do not box. Get out of there. Get out. And that's another thing I talk about in the book, being willing to quit but never give up. You know, like if, I'm, if I find myself in a, in, a, in a ring with a professional boxer, I am quitting immediately. You know what I mean? Like if I didn't quit basketball, I would be, I don't know, I'd probably be homeless today. You know, if I didn't quit that relationship I was in with in college, I wouldn't have the wife I have. I wouldn't have the kids I have. If I hadn't quit certain jobs, I wouldn't have a, I wouldn't have the career I have, you know? So there's a difference. In, and I think that's why I love the Seth Godin thing so much is like, what would you do even if you knew you would fail? Because there's this, there's this Chinese proverb that says that the journey is greater than the end and knowing like, Hey, what is worth doing anyways? You know? And those are the things that we normally, the paradox is, those are the things that usually bring the most success <laughs> than, than going after that outcome and going, I need to get this. It's this amount of money. It's living in this place. It's having these things. And then, you know, you realize you get to the top of the building and either what's there, there's that, that old saying that, you know, the worst thing is getting to the top of the building and realizing your ladder was leaning up against the wrong building or that there's nothing else to do other than jump. You know, either outcome is, is not good. So at least join, I mean, find a way to enjoy the journey. When you hear that, when you go. Oh, it, it's just, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to switch gears for us, Kinsley. So if you're on this track, let's stay with it. And then I'll hit it after you. <laughs> Doug, whenever you go. heard that Seth Godin quote, what came to mind for you that's worth doing? even if you're going to fail or what did that lead you down? Like what thoughts did it provoke? So I, I heard that this was, I don't know, two or three weeks ago when I heard this interview. Um, and so my, the biggest thing in, in my world was my, my book was a week or two from coming out. And I remember having that thought that like this book was worth writing, whether it's successful or not. Like I, I legitimately did not, I hoped, I hoped I wanted it to do well, but I legitimately didn't care because it's not the re reason I wrote the book. You know, like I wrote the book and this really was obnoxious to, uh, to my, um, 
to my to my manager that was that was helping manage through all of the book stuff is that in the beginning you know the marketing team wants to know what do you what do we what do we call a success what are the outcomes we're looking for and there were three things that I, I they needed me to answer like what are the three biggest outcomes and i and i wrote this in in my email response i want to be proud of this book i want my children to be proud of this book i want my grandchildren to be proud of this book and they sent me a message back like that's not something we can really map toward you know like how do we accomplish this and my response was that's sort of the point you can't so anything anything that the marketing team does that's positive as long as i stay inside of my integrity and my purpose in writing this book anything else that happens is is a complete benefit is icing on the cake for me and i have found that i've sort of done my career that way and i don't know very i don't i don't know i don't come around, i don't come across a ton of people um, that I think that love their work as much as I love my work. And most of the time, I think it's because I don't so much look at the outcomes as much as I look at the journey. Is this worth doing? Is this something, a place where I can really contribute? Is this a place I can really bring value? And if the question's no, I normally quit. <laughs> and I go do, because every no is a yes to something else and every yes is a no to something else. And I only have a limited amount of time. And it reminds me of, there's this, there's this video I saw once by this, there was this Hindu guru answering questions. It was a Q and A. And there was, it was like at a middle school and this, this young girl, this young, small, sweet little petite girl walks up to the microphone and she goes, she goes, guru, what should, what should me and my, uh, my peers know that we do not know? It's like this super smart, deep question from this little girl. And he thinks about it for a second and he says this, you are going to die and it's going to be sooner than you expect. Next question. <laughs> and the more I've thought about that, like it's brilliant. It's an absolute brilliant response because we only have a certain amount of time today. We only have a certain amount of time in our life. For God's sake, let's let's use it doing something that only we can do in a way that only we can do it, and be, and and, and not try to compare ourselves to some status quo or what somebody says that we we should be or should do. You know, Mark and I can relate to the outcome of the book, right? So we weren't they were after I think numbers as well, and we said, well, we want to have fun writing it and enjoying it together and the journey of that. So uh, totally relate to that. We've been talking about um, the mentee. Is that what would you call it? The mentee, yeah, the person who's sure. going to be mentored. But you're a coach. You've been doing this for a long time. And I'm sure that there's people listening to this. And um, whether they've been a mentor or not, make a case, Doug, just knowing what you get out of it. And there's that saying that you can't possibly give more than you get in situations like this. So talk a little bit about what it's meant to you personally to be able to be a mentor to people so that when people hear you talk about that, it may inspire them to carve out some time from their day to help the neighbor kid figure out what profession they want to be in or to help someone inside the industry that you're already working in to be better than where they are. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, it's my, it's my opinion that everyone should be consistently being mentored and being a mentor. 
you know, I, I have found for me that the best mentors are the people who know how to be mentored, right? Like the worst mentors are the ones that think they know everything or even worse, the ones that will, you know, charge you $6,000 a year to mentor you, you know? And I think the, the biggest thing is mentorship in general should have a mutual benefit. You know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like any other relationship. You know, if you have a one-sided relationship, it's not going to last very long. And by definition, it's dysfunctional, you know? And so the question that I oftentimes ask people that are looking for a mentor is what value could you bring first to the relationship? The essence of leadership is the willingness, the skills, and the ability to go first. That's why we called it leadership, going first. And so if I want a mentor, I have to go first. I've got to start doing my work first, and then I have to bring the first bit of, uh, of, of value. And like, here's an example. Two people in, uh, that come to mind right now from this year in particular. One of these people uh, connected with me and sent me a message on LinkedIn. They told me that they were trying to, this is what they wanted to do. They wanted to know if uh, they could schedule an hour of my time um, to talk about how to get there and to be coached and then told me all the other great things about them. Uh, I did not respond to that message for a while. And then after a little bit, I responded, just said, hey, uh, I'm really grateful you sent me this message. It's just not something that fits right now. There was another person that sent me a message. And he said, Hey, uh, I live in the same city you live in. I am a, I am a CPA and I would love the opportunity to do all of your CPA work this year. Absolutely for free. And the only thing I would ask in return is I would love to talk to you about how I can grow my business. The second I got that, I sent him a message back and I said, Hey, let's, let's talk. I didn't, he didn't become my CPA. I didn't need that because I, ha I have a CPA, right? But what I, what I knew was this is a guy that's willing to go first. He's willing to do the work. And I'm, I'm happy to give him an hour where I wasn't willing to give 10 minutes to the other character. And so sometimes the hardest thing about mentorship is picking the right person, knowing who's ready and knowing who's not ready. And the best way to know is, are they doing their work? You know, it's, I, I hate to keep going back to this book, The Practice, but apparently it's made a really big impact on me. Um, one of the things Seth Godin talks about in The Practice is like, hey, show, show me, show me your bad writing. Before you talk about your good writing, show me your bad writing. Show me your, show me your bad work. Show me, the, show me the stuff where you've screwed up. Like, that's how I know whether you're ready for the next thing or not. You know, like, don't tell me you can't write a book or you're having a hard time. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I'm, I'm sure it's the same here, but I've got 150 pages in my book. I had to write 500 pages for this book. And over the last 10 years, I've written probably 20 books that are in my trash or 20 pages, you know, 20 books worth of pages and blog posts and other stuff. And a lot of it was garbage. And all of that 10 years worth of work to get 150 pages and, you know, I, I find that when, when we are thinking about being mentors, we want, to, we want to help people that, or we want to do things for people that need our help. And what our ego does with that oftentimes is it tries to help people that aren't yet doing their work. And that's the most frustrating place to be. Instead of going, 
hey, who could I help that probably would have gotten there anyways? You know, like, like who, who can I help that people wouldn't even know they've gotten help because of their attitude, because of their willingness, because of their action? Like, those are the people I want to work with. You know, like, I'm not going to beg anybody to grow. This is, this is why it's called personal responsibility. Personal growth is a personal responsibility. And it's, and the best thing I think a mentor can do, and for me, the most gratifying is to get the heck out of the way. Like, mentorship should be a disappearing into the experience for people. I have, I've got a really good friend, his name's Jason Goldberg, and uh, he's a coach as well. And one of the things he told me I thought was really brilliant about coaching, and I think good mentorship is just good coaching. And what, what Jason said is that good coaches, you know, the everyday run-of-the-mill coaches, they, they have really impactful conversations with people that help them to do better, to be better, to get better, whatever. But exceptional coaches, the best coaches, they help people have conversations with themselves that transform their lives, right? So as I'm thinking about how do I coach better? How do I mentor better? It's really how do I get out of the way? And I help people to have a better conversation with themselves, have more ideas, have better ideas, and then go take action on those ideas. And, and I only serve as a, as, an, as a environment more than a sage or a guru. Is, is that related to the inner game of tennis? You mentioned that book to us. Yeah. The inner game of tennis, and you, I haven't read it, but you said something to the effect of that book really is about getting out of the way. And you're saying, yeah. as a coach, you need to get out of the way. Help us understand that a little bit more. So say that you're a retail manager or a sales trainer at a furniture or mattress store, and you really want to up your team's game. You've got some people that maybe are showing some promise, and, but, but they're really not doing what you want them to do. Would, yeah. You know, the instinct is get in there and help them and be there and be visible and lead by example. What do you mean by get out of the way? I, I talked to, I was talking to a mom earlier today, just today that, that is, uh, that wanted some coaching for her son. And she said something I thought was really brilliant. She said, as a mom, I am doing my best to parent myself out of a job. Because if, when my kids get out of college, if they still need me in the same way, I have failed. This is the same thing that I think sales managers do all the time is they get their value from their salespeople being subservient. They need the, they need the TO, they need them to come and can you close this deal, right? It makes them feel important. It puffs up their ego, but their salespeople, their teams never are able to succeed any higher than their competency, right? It's um, what is it? Maxwell's the law of the lid, right? Uh, that he talks about in the 2021 irrefutable laws. I find, and this is, this is something I, I learned for myself, and this is a lesson from the inner game of tennis, where this, this tennis coach, he is, it's not that he's trying to help this person. He, he's so bored because he's so tired of like teaching these middle-aged hack professionals how to teach tennis. He just ends up one day just going and sitting on the sideline and he stops coaching altogether. And so instead of coaching, he just starts asking the person, so how did, how did that feel when you, when you hit that? And they answer the question. So what do you think you could do to make better contact? And they answer the question. And after a while, he goes, holy cow, this guy is getting better without me involved. It seems like he's improving. The less I say to him, the more he's improving. 
And so he stopped telling people what to do and just started asking questions and became one of the most well-known and renowned tennis coaches. And, and this book has, is, has been a massive, has sold tons and tons of copies outside of the sports space in general. And I found as a sales manager, when I would do the same thing, my people would get better. Because if I tell them what I would have done, well, cool, that's what you would have done. What does that have to do with me? But when they would be de we decompress from a from a client experience, and I'd say, so so what? So tell me about what happened. Where were they from? So what questions did you ask? What was their biggest concern? What was their objection? So how did you answer that? How would you maybe do that next time if you had another chance? Instead of going, you know what you should have done? My, I, I had a mentor once who would who would call that giving people the finger, where you point point their, your finger at, at them and go, you know what you should do? You know what you should have done? And no one likes to get the finger in any capacity, whether it's this one or the, or the other one that you get on the highway, you know? And being willing to just simply ask people the question and let them have their own ideas and figure it out themselves. I don't know about you guys. I have fallen deeply in love with every idea I've ever had. <laughs> and most of the time, I, I don't fall in love with other people's ideas like that. So when I have an idea, I'm pretty likely to take action on it. But if you give me an idea, I've got to run it through all these filters. And only if it aligns with an idea that I would have had anyway, will I take action. So, so why try to put these things in people's heads that they're not willing to take in? Why not ask them questions and then either through questioning, either e redirect or affirm. And then you are simply the person that goes, you know, you should absolutely do it that way next time. Let me know what happens. And then, and then we're, we're simply there to celebrate people. We're there to, to help people with their perspective. This is where that acronym for mentor, this is where it really comes in. I get the most excited when I get an opportunity to coach someone that I am way less competent than. Like you give, you give me a rocket scientist, that's when I'm at my best because I can't rely on my intelligence. I can't rely on what to tell them what to do or how to do their job or work with their peers. I have no idea. So I have to rely on them as the content matter expert of their own life instead of, instead of myself. And I think that's what the best coaches do naturally. It's a really good way of thinking about how to approach any situation where you're in a position of leadership and you're trying to get the best out of somebody. Yeah. Imagine that person, at, unless you're a rocket scientist, as a rocket scientist, where you, can't, you don't know what they know. They are infinitely more intelligent than you. But what you, what you can bring to the table is the ability to give, to let them own it. Right. The right. ability right. to bring to the surface something that's inside of them that's going to be meaningful that they can put into, into practice. This, it reminds me, I had this conversation once with a, with a sales a furniture store manager. This is when I was a rep. And I can remember, I can remember he was complaining because he, he, was, he would say things like, every time I see him, he'd say things like, if they would only do what I tell them to do, they would make more money. We would make more money. Everything would be fine if they just listened to me. And, it, and he would also say things like this. When I was on the sales floor, mm -hmm. I would never make a mistake like this. I would always, whatever, follow up with the customer. I'd always confirm. I would always ask for that, whatever it was, right? And I can remember looking at him one day just exhausted by the complaining. And I looked at him and I said, do you realize how great of a thing that is? And he was like, why, why the hell is that a great thing? And I said, because if they all did what you did consistently to get where you were, you probably wouldn't be the manager of this store because they would all do it. 
So you would be just like everybody else. There would be nothing, nothing meaningful that would have helped you advance in your career. The reason you got to where you got is because you did some of the things other people didn't do. And my guess is, and this is, I, find, I find this to be true for me and almost every other manager I've ever met, is the reason they got there was because they acted on their own integrity, on their own instinct. It's not because they listened to a sales manager micromanage them into success. It's because they were willing to put their head down and do their work and be successful in their craft in a way that only they could. That's what made them successful. But then they get into management and they go, I have to make them versions of me so that I can be successful in this role. It doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. It, it makes me think too about the, the, the human ego, right? So if you're going to try to tell someone anything, about themselves. So even cons consider a consumer that walks into your store. The best way to sell a consumer isn't to tell them how great your stuff is, which is what 95% of salespeople probably do. Yep. It's to get the consumer in your store and ask them questions about what their needs are, their life is. What are they after? What is going on in the transition of their life? Like what are they ultimately trying to solve for? And so if, you, if you're getting them to answer those questions, they'll arrive where you want them to arrive. But if you're gonna tell them what is best for them, that doesn't internalize and they don't accept that. And I think about my son, he's a 16 year old kid and he plays basketball. And so he's got this great uh, level of confidence. He's, he's a humble kid actually, but he believes in himself enough that he's gonna step out on the court and play. And then I'll go, well, what about that? You're not, you, it didn't look like you were rebounding enough. Go to the tape, right? Video is a, a great teacher too because it's actually captured there. Or his coach not saying to him, hey, you need to rebound more. It's saying instead of that, the, the, the thing he says to these kids is, so Nick, tell me, how did you rebound today? You know, get his perception of his performance that day. And then at least you know what the starting line is. Because if you ask that question to someone and they go, I, I killed it. And then you watch the tape and they had like two, right? So I love it for that reason also is it gives you a really great perspective on what, what their belief of who they are is. And that's where you have to start. Yep. Yep. And the, and the ego is not a conversation. The ego, having a conversation with someone's ego is never helpful because the ego doesn't care about the truth. The ego only cares about its own safety and security. So the ego will lie, it'll deny, it'll, 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 it'll minimize, it'll, it'll push away, it'll, it'll create false narrative. And so if we, if there's this, there's this um, saying that if you're going to grab a tiger by its tail, you better have a good plan for its teeth. And this is, this is what happens when we grab someone by the ego, then we can't be surprised if they try to bite us or they try to, disagree with us or they tell us that we're crazy, even, even if we have the facts, because dr facts don't drive belief. Emotions drive belief. And then facts simply back up what we believed in the first place. You know, we see this with a political climate today. We can see a number depending on a person's political persuasion is whether they'll believe it or not. It has nothing to do with how legitimate the fact is. And so as we're thinking about salespeople, man, managing, coaching, leading, <clears throat> whatever it is, we have to remember that if they aren't the hero of the story and we're not asking them questions to help them have a different perspective or them do their own intellectual work and then affirming them to go, you know, that's a great idea. 
when could you, or how will you, or when will you, that's the way to get, because, and then they do it, well, then that verifies for them that's a good decision, so they'll keep doing it. But if you just tell them, hey, do this or else, it's the equivalent of a, you know, a, a two people getting married and then on the honeymoon, one of, one, of the, one of the significant others looks at the other and go, you will love me or else. Well, that marriage probably isn't going to last very long. You know, it's like- It worked for like six months though, in my defense. Yeah. At least, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at, at least until there's an opportunity to get away, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, why, it's why dictatorship doesn't work as a model. You know, like dictatorship works until the people have the power to overthrow the dictator. This is the same with sales management. You can be a micromanager. You can, and the problem with this, the thing that makes it so hard for people is that this way of leading works. It absolutely works. You can beat people up. You can, you can scare people into, into losing their job, losing hours, losing ups, whatever it is. And it works. And that's the problem. It just doesn't work for long and it doesn't scale. That's the problem. Because short term, it's the fastest solution. But long-term, it's the absolute worst strategy. Doug Stewart, ladies and gentlemen, the book is Five and a Half Mentors, How to Learn, Grow, and Develop from Everyone and Everything. Buddy, I'm so proud of you. You can get the book on Amazon. We'll have links. Go to DougStewart919.com, DougStewart919.com. Find out more about the book. You can get involved in some of the groups Doug has going on. And of course, please read it. Please review it. Um, and please pass it around to people that you and your team want them to learn, grow, and develop and let them take ownership of that path. And but Doug, it's a great book. Um, and thank you for the shout out on the second to last page. It meant a lot. Um, <laughs> better late than never. Better late than never. It, it is a great book, Doug. And I want to encourage everyone listening to it that um, even though you think you might know something about mentorship or uh, some of the stuff we talked about, I promise you, get this book. Um, I was reading it, Doug, on a plane and had my uh, highlighter handy. Uh, Kinsley, I think you wrote in your review on Amazon something about it's highlighter friendly or highlighter happy or something like that. I thought it was a clever way to talk about it because he's right. Uh, get, get a highlighter. You're going to need it. There's some great stuff in there. And uh, Doug, I, I don't know, man. I love what you give to people. And um, you, you have that spirit, you shine that kind of light and uh, we're grateful. Thanks for giving us uh, some of your time and, and who you are today. Thank you. Love you guys. You guys are awesome. You can bounce on it. What is a hybrid? It's like peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter chocolate, hybrid so tight, there's no way that you could topple it. Hybrid on my wrist, that's a calculator watch. We add ourselves together and we take it up a notch. Got the airflow, yo, keep you cool as it get. Visco foam alone to make you drip sweat. Get a hybrid mattress, yes, you'll get better rest. Cool and comfortable, hybrid like a sweater vest. You know the game, we're ahead of the sun. Cause the two of us together are way better than one. Cause I'm cool as ice, and I'm hot like a heater. Bounce by the ounce, now we got it by the leader. Well, you take a spring and you wrap it up right. You can sleep so smooth or bounce all night. Yeah. Put two together, get a whole lot more. Get the feel of the comfort core. You can bounce on it. Lay back, you don't have to practice. It's the best thing to happen to your mattress. Yeah. Get together to do it like I did. Everybody get high.
somebody to get in your vicinity You probably wanna feel a little bit of a hybridity From alone, out of five, maybe one star Springs and foam, we're taking care of that lumbar Mad back support, the best way to shack up Or just get rest that won't mess your back up Like a hot chick mixed with a particle physicist Or a mullet party in the back of the business Best of both worlds like Mars and Venus The ultimate hybrid Nothing short of cheap Keeping it loose while keeping it tight We can make you sleep or play all night Put two together, get a whole lot more Get the feel of a comfort core You can bounce on it No stopping when the beat gets played back Springs keep it popping, phone keeps it laid back Party over here, get invited Everybody get high What kind of bed do you keep back there? Does your girl want to chill on a beanbag chair? Hell no! You need springs and foam Cause if that bowling ball don't bounce You'll be sleeping alone And if the bed don't react Then you can't get low We got that type of bounce That won't spill your Merlot So stick with us And you'll get rewarded Cause I'm so gentle And I'm so supportive And we just killed a song about mattresses.